What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Six, the hunter becomes a hunted. Listener, in part one, you heard about a string of disappearances that came to the attention of law enforcement in the early 1980s in Anchorage, Alaska, but appeared to be linked to missing persons cases as far back as 1971. By the summer of 1983, the bodies of three women had been found buried in shallow graves in the wilderness on the outskirts of Anchorage. An unidentified woman known as Eklutna Annie, 24-year-old Joanna Messina, and 23-year-old Sherry Morrow. The women who had gone missing generally exotic dancers are sex workers from interstate, but not always. Both Anchorage Police Department and the Alaska State Troopers were aware of at least four other women in the area who had managed to escape a man who attacked them, as well as women who had disappeared in what law enforcement called the case of the missing dancers. There were encouraging leads from survivors, but no evidence to indicate who was responsible for the other disappearances and the murders. Our story picks back up in June of 1983, with 17-year-old Cindy Paulson, who grew up in Seattle. Cindy started running away from home at the age of 12 and was soon taken in by a pimp. By the age of 15, Cindy was using drugs, and she eventually turned to sex work to help her survive the streets. On the evening of June 13, 1983, 
Cindy was working the corner of 5th Avenue and Den Alley in Anchorage when a man in a green Buick pulled up around 11.30 p.m. Cindy got in the car and the man offered her $200 for oral sex. Once engaged in the act, Cindy's client handcuffed one of her hands to the car seat. When Cindy tried to free herself, the man pulled out a gun and held it to her head while quickly cuffing her other hand. The man repeatedly told Cindy that if she cooperated, she wouldn't get hurt. Cindy was terrified but fought against her urge to struggle in case things got worse, but they did anyway. The man told her he was taking her to his house and proceeded to drive through the streets of Anchorage to Old Harbor Road in the suburb of Muldoon, an upper-class area not far from town. They eventually stopped at a large, blue-gray ranch-style house where the man forced Cindy inside and down to the basement. There was a couch and bars on the windows. The bearskin rug was on the floor near a pool table, and the wood-paneled walls were adorned with hunting trophies in the form of mounted animal heads. The savage and pained expressions on the motionless faces made Cindy's skin crawl, but before she had time to think further, the man stripped Cindy naked, handcuffed her to a chair, and tied a rope around her neck, securing the other end to a coffee table. He casually told Cindy that she wasn't the first, that he'd previously brought seven other girls back to his house, usually keeping them in the den for a week or more before killing them. The man raped Cindy on the rug without a condom and orgasm after only three minutes. He also bit her nipples and sexually assaulted her with a hammer. Afterwards, the man allowed Cindy to use the bathroom, but he followed her, keeping her restrained with the rope around her neck and handcuffs on. Cindy was hopeful at the prospect of an escape route via bathroom window, but she found it nailed shut. When Cindy returned from the bathroom, the man sat her on the floor near the pool table, kept her handcuffed, and replaced the rope with a chain he wrapped around her neck four times, securing the other end to a metal post. She could move around a little, but not much. The chain was tight, and if Cindy moved too much, she'd be choked. Her captor laid down on the couch to have a nap and turned on the TV, but warned her not to wake him. The man fell asleep, leaving Cindy chained up the entire time. By the time five hours had passed, Cindy needed to relieve herself again and had to resort to using a towel nearby the pool table. Cindy briefly considered hitting the man with a pool stick laying on the pool table, but figured if she killed him, she'd be left for dead. And if she didn't kill him, she'd wake him. When her captor awoke, Cindy begged to go home and promised she wouldn't tell anyone what happened. Instead, the man told her that because he liked her so much, he would take her in his plane to his cabin to have sex with her once more, and then bring her back to Anchorage. The man told Cindy that if she tried to escape or get anyone's attention, he'd kill both her and them. But if she cooperated, he'd let her go. He told her he'd taken lots of girls up there for fun that he already had an alibi, as his friends were willing to lie for him. But Cindy knew she wouldn't be returning. The man forced Cindy to lay down on the back seat of his car, covered up. In the passenger seat of the vehicle, she noticed a rope and a gun. The pair arrived at Merrill Airfield, just outside Anchorage. The man left Cindy in the car while he tended to a light plane parked on the airstrip. Cindy saw him put a firearm into the plane and fiddle with the seat in the cockpit, she saw her chance, and, opening the car door, she sprang from the back seat, running as far into town as she could. The last thing she saw as she looked behind her was the man chasing her, wielding a gun, shouting, 
Stop, you bitch. Stop, or I'll kill you. A hysterical Cindy ran partially dressed, barefoot, and handcuffed all the way to 6th Avenue and flagged down a passing truck. She screamed at the motorist, He's going to kill me, and begged him to take her to the mush inn, where Cindy asked staff to call her pimp to come and get her. The motorist continued on to work, where he then contacted police. Cindy, meanwhile, was taken to the Big Timber Motel, where she was staying. Disturbed by the state of Cindy's distress and unable to calm her down, her pimp took off with a gun towards Merrill Airfield on a vigilante mission of his own. Cindy still had the handcuffs on and was desperately trying to remove them when police arrived in the Big Timber Motel. Cindy was then taken to APD headquarters where she gave a formal statement and relived her horrific experience. Despite her extreme distress, Cindy described in detail what she saw in the man's house and basement. She saw women's clothing in the laundry and toys in the den. Cindy told the APD that her abductor wanted her to say nasty things. She had memorized the location of the house and the tail number of the plane, a Piper Super Cub. She also told police that she had left her blue pumps on the passenger side floor of the Buick's back seat at the airport, as evidence that she had been inside the car. Cindy described her attacker as wiry, scruffy, 5 foot 6 inches tall with glasses and a stutter. The nature of her description about the car, plane, and the man's house were so detailed that the police were compelled to check it out. Cindy was taken to the hospital for a rape exam, where she was found to have vaginal bruising as well as shackle marks around her neck and wrists. Cindy told police that during her ordeal, she was on her period. Being a quick thinker, instead of removing and discarding her tampon during the assault, she kept it in in the hopes that police could use it to obtain forensic evidence. Cindy told police, This motherfucker wasn't going to get away with it. I knew I was in trouble, but if there was any chance of me getting away... He wasn't getting away with it. After Cindy gave her statement, investigators drove her to Merrill Airfield, where she identified the plane. While they were there, a security guard approached police to report that at 5.14 a.m. that day, he had seen a white male wearing a green coat and a cap, running from the plane to a green vehicle. Something about the situation had seemed off, and the security guard wrote down the vehicle's license plate, which he gave to the police. The license plate number matched a green Buick, registered to Robert Hansen. Listener, you'll recall from part one that 44-year-old Robert was a well-known Anchorage businessman and avid hunter who ran a popular local bakery. He moved from Iowa to Alaska in 1967 with his wife and soon fell right at home often going out in his light plane to hunt wildlife on the outskirts of town. Robert Hansen wasn't home when police arrived to question him about Cindy's claims. But when he pulled up moments later, police noted that he fitted the physical description Cindy had provided. When police informed Robert of the allegations against him, he was shocked, but consented to a police search of his home, business, vehicles, and plane, as well as an interview. The search revealed that Cindy had indeed been inside Robert's house and car at some stage, but there was no evidence in the house or car that any rape or physical assault had taken place, as Cindy claimed. A loose-fitting wall panel in the house revealed a stash of weapons stored in the cavity behind it, but given Robert was a keen hunter and had kids in the house, it was no surprise they were stored in such a concealed way. A revolver was recovered by police, but inconsistent with the one as described by Cindy. 
Another reason an arrest would prove difficult was because Robert's alibi is checked out. During his interview, Robert told police the night Cindy claimed she was kidnapped, he was at a friend's house from 5 to 11.30 p.m., repairing an airplane seat. He then visited another friend where he stayed until 5.30 a.m. that morning, finally driving to the airport to install the repaired seat. Robert told police that he'd never met Cindy, and that his family was away in Europe on summer vacation. In an attempt to show how absurd he found the whole situation, Robert joked to police, You can't rape a prostitute, can you? The day following her abduction, Cindy picked Robert out of a lineup without hesitation, but she refused to take a polygraph test and when she suddenly left town soon after, the APD decided to take the word of the respected local businessman with a solid alibi against the word of a sex worker, whom they concluded had fabricated her story. Besides, this was the guy who ran the business where the cops bought their donuts and coffee. Sex workers had a reputation for being unreliable when it came to assisting in police investigations at the best of times. But this distrust went both ways. Sex workers and exotic dancers were all too familiar with the judgment and disdain from the local community. Even if police could identify the whereabouts of a woman who worked in a club or brothel, there was no guarantee they'd even be provided with the correct name. Many of the women went by stage names, so... Sometimes you never really knew who you were talking to. And for the APD, whose investigative resources were already stretched, Cindy's kidnapping and rape, serious as it was, was not murder. Reports made to police by sex workers who had been attacked or victimized by their clients or pimps simply weren't prioritized. And it appeared to Cindy Paulson, at least, that her claims would be treated the same way. The unsolved murders of the missing dancers took priority when it came to police resources. With no further evidence to corroborate Cindy's account, the investigation into her abduction was officially suspended. But something about it didn't sit right with the APD officer, Greg Baker, who continued to make inquiries. For Officer Baker, it was clear that it was only a matter of time before another young woman went missing in the Anchorage area and only a matter of time before another body turned up. On September 2, 1983, just three months after Cindy Paulson's abduction and rape, road construction crew found decomposed human skeletal remains buried in a shallow grave on the banks of the Kinnick River. When troopers investigated, they found the body of a woman wearing tan boots. The victim was clothed, however, her jeans were unbuttoned and unzipped, and her striped sweater and bra had been cut in half at the front. The remoteness of the location was puzzling. It wasn't far from where Sherry Morrow's body had been found just over a year earlier, but the only way this place could be accessed was by boat or light plane. At the autopsy the day after the body was discovered, the victim was estimated to be aged in her late 20s to early 30s. She had been raped and the cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the sternum from a .223 caliber bullet, which had passed through her heart with the shell casing found near her body. The victim had been naked when shot and then dressed after she was killed. Given the advanced state of decomposition, police had to rely on dental records and managed to identify her as 30-year-old Paula Goulding. Paula grew up in Kona, Hawaii, but moved to Alaska and found work as a secretary in the Fairbanks area. She soon relocated to Anchorage to try her hand at exotic dancing at the Great Alaskan Bush Company. Paula's co-worker and roommate eventually reported her missing to the APD 
saying she hadn't been seen since April 24th when she went to meet a man for a date whom she had met at a bar. It was reported that the man had offered Paula $200 to meet him for lunch, but was adamant that she take a cab to their agreed meeting place. Police were disturbed at the similarities between Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding's murders, and the discovery of Paula's body convinced State Trooper Sergeant Glenn Flothy that a serial killer was stalking the streets of Anchorage. Ballistics evidence from the shell casings at the Morrow and Goulding crime scenes had been sent to the FBI in Washington, D.C. for further analysis. The state troopers established a task force to investigate and link similarities between the reports of missing women and the known murder victims, but these reports were difficult to investigate. Given the transient nature of the floating population itself, Anchorage wasn't a place where exotic dancers and sex workers settled down to build a steady clientele. It was challenging for police to trace women who arrived in town, only to leave a few weeks or months later to seek work elsewhere. Law enforcement set to work educating women in the area about how to protect themselves, especially exotic dancers and sex workers. By September 1983, 15 potential suspects had been identified as possibly responsible for abducting, raping, and murdering a slew of young women in the area. So far, police had visited bars and clubs where women provided them with names of men they called bad dates. Guys who were creepy or just gave them a weird vibe and made them feel unsafe or fearful. Police conducted thorough background checks on these men, but so far, had come up with nothing. Meanwhile, APD officer Greg Baker continued to investigate the abduction and rape of 17-year-old Cindy Paulson. Like Sergeant Flothy, Officer Baker couldn't shake the feeling that Cindy's traumatic experience and detailed account was not only truthful, but directly linked to the reports of missing women in the Anchorage area. The investigation into Cindy's claims by the APD had been officially closed by senior officers, but Officer Baker couldn't ignore his instinct that told him that Robert Hansen was more involved than originally suspected. Unable to wait while more women went missing, Officer Baker defied his superiors and started digging around. Researching Robert's hard copy police and court records from every town he had lived prior to arriving in Anchorage, in order to determine whether his criminal history was more extensive than first thought, Robert's prior arson conviction proved that Officer Baker was on the right track. Officer Baker sent hard copies of Robert Hansen's criminal records, as well as a report detailing his suspicions to Sergeant Glenn Flothy, who was heading up the state trooper's investigation. Sergeant Flothy's review of missing persons data in Alaska revealed eight similar cases that formed a pattern. The missing women were in their late teens to their 20s, between 5 foot 4 and 5 foot 7 inches tall, and weighed between 120 and 125 pounds. Cindy Paulson was consistent with his victim profile, and the information provided by Cindy several months earlier put Robert Hansen at the top of Sergeant Flothy's list of suspects. Sergeant Flothy also found that Robert owned a cabin near the site where bodies had been recovered, and of all the men on the suspect list, he was the only one who owned a plane. The state troopers began monitoring Robert Hansen's flights in and out of Merrill Airfield, but came up with nothing. Though there was still no direct evidence linking Robert to the murders of Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding, the more Sergeant Flothy learned, the more he became convinced he had found his killer. Sergeant Flothy reached out to the FBI in Quantico, Virginia, 
for assistance in pinpointing behavioral characteristics that could lead him to their suspect. The FBI was specific in their response. Don't tell us about your theories about the suspect. Tell us about the victims in the crime scenes, and we'll tell you who did it. The book Butcher Baker, the true account of an Alaskan serial killer, explains how world-renowned behavioral analysis John Douglas and his colleague Roy Hazelwood compiled the following profile. The killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, have a history of being rejected by women, and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as victims' jewelry or even body parts as trophies. They proposed that the killer was a hard-working, successful businessman aged between 33 to 44, who was married to a woman who was likely highly religious or unaware of her husband's activities. They also suggested that the assailant might stutter. The perpetrator specifically chose sex workers and exotic dancers due to the transient nature of their work and the fact that they usually went unnoticed. The abuse of sex workers was a way for the perpetrator to seek revenge on women. The profile fit 44-year-old Robert Hansen to a T. Then another disappearance was reported. Twenty-year-old Dalen Frey arrived in Anchorage from Baltimore, Maryland. Her parents were divorced and her ex-military father was an absent parent who required ongoing care following an aneurysm. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Dalen, who worked as an exotic dancer under the name Sugar to support a reported heroin dependency, was reported missing in September 1983, but hadn't been seen since the previous April. Meanwhile, troopers expanded their search of the Kinnick River area. They were confident that the body count was far higher than the three that had been found so far, but the area was so fast and so remote that a full sweep of the area was impossible, and troopers came up empty-handed. In an investigation that had gathered a significant amount of purely circumstantial evidence, they were close, just not close enough. 
Investigators contacted 17-year-old Cindy Paulson, who had escaped from Robert Hansen the previous June to see if she could remember anything else. And they were in luck. Cindy identified a long barrel rifle known as a Thompson Contender as the one used during her kidnapping and owned by Robert. At a follow-up interview on September 27, 1983 with Sergeant Flothy, Cindy recounted part of her encounter with Robert. And he had called me, and I slept through it when I was supposed to meet him. So the next day, which was Sunday, I was on the corner of Fitz and Denali, and the gentleman here rode by and pulled in the parking lot and offered me, you know, I got in the car voluntarily and was talking with this man, and he offered me $200 for a little job in the car. And I said, fine, no problem. And we pulled over to the side, by the side of the house. And I proceeded to give him a little job. And um, after I had got the um, condom on, um, we, I kept doing it. And then uh, he kept throwing around my neck. Like he was just tripping, playing around with my neck and my necklaces. And uh, he had cuffed one of my hands. And I was trying to get loose, and he pulled out a gun. And, um, he got my other hand cuffed. I don't know how he did. Just from fighting him. Because I didn't really... I fought, but not a lot, because I knew I could do something. And, um, he took me to his house on Old Barber Road in Maldon. Took me downstairs. And, um, he had a dog, a black dog, and another dog with and um, he can't, I was handcuffed the whole time, and he brought a chair over. And um, he kept telling me, you know, if I cooperate, cooperate, he won't hurt me. And he handcuffed me to the, um, to the chair at first, and then he uh, changed the hands and handcuffed me to the bottom of the other chair and had my neck tied with a rope around it to the coffee table and laid me on a brick screw up. And I was on my period at the time, and I had a tampon in my womb. And he had sex with me with no reverence. And then he kept telling me, you know, come, you know, if I'd be okay, he won't hurt me. And then uh, after that, I went to use the bathroom, and he was calling for me to look for him again. And I was handcuffed the whole time. And I was in the bathroom, it started to come out. And he told me to go back in. And I had her chains start rattling. And I came out. And um, he laid the little bed down on the floor right over by the pool table. He erupted the chain around my neck four times. And he handcuffed me and laid me down on the little bed. And I was there for about five hours. And then about five hours later, he woke up. And came over there and told me, I told him all I wanted to do was go home. Because I live with my mom. And I would never tell nobody. And the whole time, he never took none of my money and jewelry. And he told me that since he liked me so good, that he would take me to his cabin. And I to his cabin. He would make love to me one time and bring me back. And he said that he had a plane over at Merle Airfield, that we would go there. And then he would take me to his cabin and bring me back. 
and um, a new valve is gonna come back. And so we're getting ready to go and he still didn't take none of my money. I'm not confirming but this new issue. And um, we get in the car and I'm laying down on the back seat with the cover over me. And we're driving down to the Merle Airfield get to the airport and then the passenger seat he had a rope and a gun and he got out and put something in the trunk and put the gun on the top of the car and he was digging in the trunk he said he had to put his um, seat in so he could tie me up in the plane and um, he kept going back from the trunk to the plane and then when he went back to the plane I looked up and I seen it I could only see him from the waist down and the front driver's door was open, so I opened the back door and I ran and he started chasing me with the gun. On September 29, 1983, Cindy's forensic evidence was collected by the APD from the hospital and on October 11th, it was sent to the FBI. This included Cindy's clothing, samples of her head hair, pubic hair, vaginal fluid stains on her tampon, by mid-December 1983, the FBI determined that Robert Hansen was the likely source of the semen found on Cindy's underwear, and law enforcement was confident that they could link the murders of seven women to the Anchorage Baker. State troopers arranged 24-hour surveillance to be conducted on Robert, and what they found was concerning. In the early hours of the morning, Robert was observed cruising the darkened streets of Anchorage in his vehicle. By this stage, Robert knew that the police were sniffing around, and investigators worked doggedly to pursue the proverbial smoking gun that would make their case airtight. Law enforcement again reached out to FBI behavioral analyst John Douglas, who flew to Alaska to assist with the investigation. He suggested that police bring Robert in for questioning while forensic officers simultaneously searched his home without knowledge. If all went according to plan, Robert would confess... It's not unusual for state authorities to seek the assistance of the FBI in cases involving violent offenses, but in a watershed legal precedent for investigative strategy, this was the first time in the history of U.S. law enforcement that a psychological profiling would be used as the basis of executing a search warrant. The warrant for Robert's home included women's jewelry and driver's licenses, firearms as described by Cindy Paulson and the one that killed both Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding. Part 7. X Marks the Spot On the brisk fall morning of October 27, 1983, Alaska State Troopers pulled up to Robert Hansen's bakery. But they weren't there for donuts, as they had been so many mornings before. When Robert arrived, they politely requested that he accompany them down to the station, and he agreed. Part of the FBI's recommendations in helping to elicit a confession from Robert was to adorn the police interrogation room wall-to-wall with maps, as well as photos of the crime scenes, victims, and missing women. Robert was left in the room alone for a time, confronted with the visual evidence against him. During his five-hour interview, Robert was open with police about how his unhappy childhood and strict father had caused some anger management issues. He answered questions about his criminal record 
and admitted to using the services of exotic dancers and sex workers in the early 1970s. He also used the opportunity to tell investigators that he didn't appreciate being charged more by a sex worker than originally agreed, but he denied harming any of the women with whom he ever came into contact. With the interview underway, troopers simultaneously descended upon Robert's home, bakery, and the airport to execute the various search warrants, including searches of the Super Cub and Robert's vehicles. Nothing of significance was found at the bakery, so officers converged at the Hansen home to assist in the videotaped search. Behind the headboard of Robert's bed, officers located an aerial map depicting Anchorage, the Kinnick River Valley, and surrounding districts. On the map were 24 crosses marked as an X, all within a 100-mile radius of the city. A search of a concealed space in the attic revealed 30 firearms hidden under ceiling insulation, including a 22 caliber Remington 552 rifle, a Thompson Contender 7mm single-shot pistol, a Winchester 12-gauge shotgun, and a 223 Ruger Mini 14 rifle. Two of these guns were similar to the ones used to kill Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding and threatened Cindy Paulson. Handguns seized from the garage included a Browning 22 semi-automatic, a Colt Match 22, and a Colt Python 357 caliber revolver. Also uncovered in the search behind wood paneling in the den were Sherry Morrow's necklace and jewelry belonging to other victims and missing women. A gold, custom-made fish necklace found among the mementos in Robert's attic was identified as belonging to Andrea Altieri. It was one of her most valued possessions, and there was no way Andrea would have parted with it willingly. It was also discovered that the hunting trophies Robert had earlier reported as stolen were actually in his backyard. Investigators also recovered numerous stolen items including a chainsaw, a 10-horsepower outboard motor, portable radio, telescope, vinyl airplane seat, green generator, and a push lawn mower. From the storage compartment behind the pilot seat of the Super Cub, police found a Colt semi-auto 22 caliber pistol. The news was sent through to the interrogation room where Robert was still being questioned. He claimed that his wife had later found his stolen hunting trophies in the backyard, that he had just forgotten to tell the insurance company, but as far as anything else was concerned, he wouldn't budge. Robert asked to consult with his attorney, and the interview ended. Back at the Hansen residence, an neighbor approached police out front of the property to see what was going on. When she was informed that Robert's home was being searched in connection with the disappearance and attacks on women in the Anchorage area, the neighbor dropped a bombshell. She told police that Robert had asked her husband to provide a false alibi for the night Cindy Paulson was abducted. Her husband had assumed that Robert was being pursued over a minor matter, and in an effort to protect his friend, agreed to cover for him. Robert's friend contacted police to retract his statement, and both friends were brought in for questioning. Both men admitted that they hadn't been with Robert on the night Cindy was abducted. While a confession from Robert hadn't yet been forthcoming, police arrested him in early November for the kidnap and rape of 17-year-old Cindy Paulson. In addition to misconduct in possession of a handgun, theft in the second degree, and theft by deception and insurance fraud, Robert pled not guilty to all charges and was taken to custody, with bail set at $500,000. The evidence gathered during the search of Robert's residence, meanwhile, implicated him in the murder of 11 women and was strong enough to convict him on four counts. But investigators had to bide their time, 
as the ballistic test results on Robert's Ruger Mini-14 rifle were yet to come back from the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C., where it had been sent in early November. State Trooper Sergeant Flothy had wanted the rifle hand-delivered, but instead it was sent by mail. When Sergeant Flothy received a call from the FBI wondering where the rifle was because it hadn't arrived, he went into a panic. The piece of physical evidence that was crucial to convicting Robert Hansen had gone missing. But thankfully, the rifle showed up in a loading dock in Chicago of all places. When the test results came back in late November, the shell casings found at the gravesites were all found to have been fired from Robert's rifle. The firing pin and the extractor markings were identical. Being able to conclusively link the murder weapon for Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding to Robert Hansen was the breakthrough law enforcement had been hoping for, but they needed more. Up until now, the aerial map recovered from behind Robert's bedhead hadn't been given much consideration based on the reasonable assumption that Robert had simply documented the locations of his kills to record his hunting prowess. But one day, in December, while working through the reams of material on the case, Sergeant Flothy came to a horrifying realization. The 24 crosses on the map mark locations along the Kinnick River, Kenai Peninsula, Seward Bay, and Resurrection Bay. Four of the crosses corresponded to the exact locations where the bodies of Eklutna Annie, Joanna Messina, Sherry Morrow, and Paula Goulding had been recovered. The crosses didn't record where Robert had killed animals. It was where he'd killed women. Meanwhile, Cindy Paulson had returned to sex work in Anchorage at the Gentleman's Retreat Massage Parlor. In January 1984, she was served with a subpoena regarding Robert's trial. But by February, she had disappeared. The APD feared she'd fled back to Seattle, no doubt terrified of the repercussions from the man who she was certain was out to kill her, or the police who she felt just wanted to discredit and humiliate her. Thankfully, Cindy was still in Anchorage and living in the Government Hill area. She was working for a new pimp. When she suddenly reappeared and contacted police, fearing for her safety, law enforcement swooped in and arranged for her to be taken to a safe house. Police had contacted Sandra Patterson, who had been abducted and raped by Robert Hansen back in 1971. Sandra was no longer a sex worker, having graduated college and got married. She had every reason to want to stay as far away from her past as possible, but she promised to testify. Then, in mid-February 1983... Police got another break. Robert Hansen's defense attorney contacted police, advising that his client wanted to talk to them to clear the decks. Robert's attorney arranged a meeting with the Anchorage District Attorney Office, during which Robert was offered a deal. In exchange for a full confession, Robert would be charged with only four of the murder cases that investigators could prove. He would be able to serve his time in a federal facility instead of a maximum security prison. In his confession on February 22nd, which lasted 12 hours over two days, Robert opened up by telling Assistant District Attorney Frank Rothschild about how he first met Cindy Paulson. Well, why don't we start then with what will be freshest in mind, which is the, the, the cases that are pending now and from what happened uh, in uh, June of last year. Can you tell us how that all came about? Uh, you want me sort of start when I first met the Cindy Paulson first time, or mm -hmm. oh, right, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the right 
dates and so forth. It's going to have to be a little bit vague on that. I'm sorry. Uh, Would it have been during the time when your uh, wife and children were out of? Yes. Uh, uh, my wife and family we were down in Arkansas visiting her folks and so forth. And uh, I met her the first time uh, uptown. Uh, the first time I seen Santa Cindy Paulson was about a block west of, I think it's a 76 station on the corner there of uh, um, Gamble and Fifth. Okay, uh, she was standing there and uh, I was driving down the street and uh, she waved a little bit and so forth and uh, I pulled up there on top with her and it was just the usual chit chat, you know, uh, asking, uh, you know, the guy in the car and asked uh, uh, how, how I was doing and so forth and remember that looking for a good time and so forth. I chatted there with her a little bit and uh, made an agreement with her uh, that I was going to see her sometime. I didn't, you know, it was. Uh, she, you know, I, I, I couldn't see her that night because it was uh, during the week and I'm running up my bakery and I'm starting there at one o'clock in the morning. And uh, she gave me a phone number there for her at one of the motels. Um, Big Timber Mush and I, sorry, I can't, can't remember which one. And, uh, I called back to her the next next day or some uh, a day or two afterwards, and she um, I can't remember if she wasn't there or she couldn't couldn't meet me. Then on the Robert again recounted what happened after he got Cindy into his car on June thirteenth. Uh, we drove to my home. Modern. And uh, there we had, uh, uh, we uh, went down into my basement, down into my, my, my den. Uh, all I do is I turn on the television set and so forth. We sat there on the couch for a little, little while. Uh, we had, uh, oh, I uh, sat there, I uh, fumbled for a little bit. Uh, uh, we uh, sat there and discussed that, uh, uh, well, didn't discuss much really, just uh, talked a little bit and chit chat. And then, of course, she was saying that, you no, know, she had to get back. And then she wanted to uh, uh, go uh, someplace and go to bed and so forth. Uh, I told her, no, uh, I would like to stay down here in the basement. Uh, I told her that I would like to uh, do it a little bit different. I would like to uh, have uh, sex with there on a large bear rug that I, I have there, or not a large, but just a normal black bear rug I had there on, on the uh, floor and so forth, and that I would like to, if all possible, uh, talk her into if I could, uh, uh, while I was having uh, sex with her, if I could put a pair of uh, handcuffs on her. And uh, she said no. 
and uh, she didn't care to uh, have that. She says uh, she didn't want any uh, uh, thing like that to, uh, to, to, to go on. Well, um, at that time, uh, I told her that uh, I was going to uh, put the handcuffs on her. Uh, I was going to have sex with her on the bear rug. She said she didn't object to where we had the sex and so forth, but not the handcuffs. And uh, at uh, that time, I guess uh, I showed her a firearm and told her that uh, I wanted her to put the handcuffs on and that uh, I told her that she had to put them on. Uh, that's the first time I know she stated that I forced her in up at the car and so forth. That's, that's not true. Uh, the first time there was any uh, force shoes and so forth was in, in my home. Uh, and it is, it is true there, uh, I had sex with us there on the bear rug and so forth in my home. Uh, a detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me down there my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. When investigators confronted Robert Hansen with the aerial map adorned with crosses, they questioned him about the precise number of victims. Assistant DA Franks Rothschild saw for the first time how the friendly local businessman everyone knew could transform into someone who terrorized women. Robert's neck turned red and his demeanor changed. He was livid. He asked for a break to consult with his lawyers, but could be heard screaming at them from behind the closed door. Robert eventually agreed to plead guilty and confess to the murders of Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, Eklutna Annie, and Paula Goulding, on the condition that his family be left alone, that there be no publicity about his arrest, that upon conviction he be imprisoned outside Alaska. 
He claimed that the women he'd killed were linked to criminal gangs, and if he remained in the state, he'd be murdered in prison. As part of his plea deal, Robert also agreed to reveal to the state police where more of his victims' bodies were buried. Robert went on to matter-of-factly confess to raping more than 30 women during his time in Anchorage, but claimed he'd released the ones who had submitted to his demands and assured him they wouldn't report him to the police. He told police that he befriended women by telling them he was from out of town, then offered to pay to conduct photo shoots. He arranged to meet up with them at fast food restaurants or cafes, where they'd accompany him to his car to another location. What the women didn't know was that one half of a handcuff was already fastened to the passenger seat. Once his unsuspecting prey was in the car, Robert would reach over and grab his gun while fastening the other cuff to his victim. He would then drive the women to his home or a motel where he would rape and torture them. Following the horrific sexual assault, Robert would tell his victims he was taking them to his cabin, which in reality was a shack in the Kanik River area of the Matanuska Valley, accessible only by boat or bush plane. Robert had barrels scattered in various locations throughout the mountains filled with supplies such as rope, ammunition, guns, duct tape, and shovels. He blindfolded his victims and drove or flew them out to the wilderness on the outskirts of town. If they resisted, he forced them to strip at gunpoint, let them go, and then hunted them down with a firearm, like wild animals. The victims were usually given a head start, and in a terrifying psychological twist, Robert often allowed a victim to think she had escaped, only for him to pursue her again, and claim that redressing his victims after he'd murdered them satisfied his need for control. Investigators soon discovered why it had been so difficult to monitor Robert's flight activity following the discovery of Sherry Morrow's body in 1982. Robert had been flying without a pilot's license, and in order to avoid detection, he painted the ID number of his plane in small letters, so they were impossible to detect from a distance. He also frequently provided a different ID number to the control tower at Merrill Airfield when taking off and landing. It was as if the flights never occurred. Robert admitted to abducting and murdering Klutna Annie in November 1979, but denied raping her. He believed she came to Anchorage from the Kodiak area and that she worked at the Good Times Bar. When Robert abducted Annie, he drove her out of town to the Glen Highway, but when she tried to escape, he threatened her with a gun. Robert's truck then became bogged, so Annie used the opportunity to run. Robert chased her down Eklutna Road and stabbed her to death in the back with a hunting knife she had in her purse. Robert then told police that in May 1980, he bought Joanna Messina dinner and the pair then drove up to the Seward Highway to the Snow River. But when Joanna propositioned Robert and asked him for money, things turned bad quickly. Robert struck Joanna over the head and then shot her and her dog with a 22 pistol. Robert dragged Joanna's body across the gravel, stuffed her into a sleeping bag, and threw the gun into the Snow River. He claimed he was violently sick after the killing. Robert revealed that after raping and torturing Paula Goulding in April 1983 in his cabin outside Anchorage, he opened the front door and let her run away. After a few moments, he took off after her with his rifle. He became animated when he talked about how Paula had cut her feet running across some sharp rocks. She tried to ride under some nearby bush, but when Robert saw her and called out, she jumped up and ran over open ground, 
unknowingly giving her attacker a clear shot. Of Paula's murder, Robert said, It was like going after a trophy doll sheep or a grizzly bear. Robert explained that he was able to abduct, rape, and murder women and remain undetected by sending his family away on extended summer vacations to either his wife's family in Arkansas or to Europe, which he came to call his summer plan. Four weeks before his wife and children left their European summer vacation in 1983, Robert placed an ad in the singles column of the Anchorage Daily News, which read, Adventurous male, 42, 5'11", 165 pounds, looking for a lady proud to be a woman, to share a sincere, honest attachment, must like to dance and enjoy social life, willing to put on jeans. Join me in finding what's around the next bend, over the next hill, enjoy flying own plane, beachcombing, fishing, camping. Life is much fuller if shared. Send recent photo. Robert soon received a response on June 8th, five days before he abducted Cindy Paulson. The woman who responded to the ad visited his house. Robert showed her his hunting trophies in the den and told her he wanted to have sex with her on the bare rug. The woman turned him down, given it was a first date. In a close call for Robert, the woman turned out to work for the Alaska State Troopers. During his confession, Robert was asked about taking a woman to McHugh Creek in 1971. Listener, as you'll recall from part one, this was the location where Beth Van Zanten's body was discovered on Christmas Day of that year. As written about by author Leland Hale in an article for pop culture website The Lineup. Now, just over 12 years later, Robert blurted out Beth's name during his confession, but quickly denied any responsibility or knowledge of the case. Beyond being charged for abducting Sandra Patterson a few days before Beth's disappearance, but an X mark found on the aerial map recovered from his house corresponded with the location where Beth's body was found, contradicting Robert's denial. Robert demonstrated a detailed knowledge of the Seward area where Megan Emmerich was last seen in July 1973. Mary Thill was last seen in July 1975. Robert admitted to meeting Megan on the Seward docks the weekend she disappeared, stating he tried to lure her onto his boat, but he denied abducting and murdering either Megan or Mary. Robert went on to say that following the police questioning over his attack on Christy Hayes in 1979, he never used his camper again, instead relying on his car and plane to transport victims. He also learned that people were less likely to notice or report exotic dancers and sex workers as missing, and that they were harder to track down due to the transient nature of their employment. At the time of Megan Emmerich's disappearance, she was described as having long brown hair and hazel eyes. She was reported to be 5 foot 4 inches tall and weighed 120 pounds. She was last seen wearing blue jeans, a white long sleeve checkered suit, a brown short sleeve sweatshirt, and suede ski boots. At the time of Mary Thill's disappearance, she was described as having auburn or red hair and blue eyes. She was reported to be 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed 130 pounds. She was last seen wearing an army jacket, a gray pullover sweater, blue jeans, leather hiking boots, and was carrying a small backpack. She regularly wore glasses with round pink frames and thick lenses. Robert Hansen confessed to abducting, raping, and murdering Roxanne Eastland a sex worker who disappeared from Anchorage in late June 1980 and was never seen again. At the time of her disappearance, Roxanne was described as having brown hair and brown eyes. 
She was reported to be 5 foot 3 inches tall and weighed 90 to 105 pounds. Was last seen wearing a short brown leather coat with a fur collar, pants or blue jeans, and black high-heeled boots. Roxanne may have been carrying a purse and was sometimes known to wear wire-framed glasses. She also had a birthmark on top of her shoulder and a birthmark on the top of her right thigh. Robert also confessed to abducting, raping, and murdering Andre Altieri, a sex worker who disappeared from Anchorage in early December 1981. Like Roxanne, Andrea was never seen again. After he picked Andrea up, Robert had fondled her breasts in the car and ordered her to perform oral sex. When the pair got out of the car near the Kinnick River Bridge, Robert told her that he had raped a woman at the same spot a week prior. Andrea attempted to grab Robert's pistol and poked her fingers in his eyes, but he shot her. Robert partially confirmed during his confession that Andrea's body was weighted down with a gravel-filled airplane bag and had been thrown into the river from an overhead railroad bridge. At the time of her disappearance, Andrea was described as having brown hair and brown eyes. She was reported to be 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed 120 pounds, was last seen wearing black leather jacket, red sweater, blue jeans, brown cowboy boots, a gold-colored ring set with a pearl, a gold-colored ring set with two pearls, an antique wedding band with a rose-set top, and the custom-made fish necklace discussed earlier that was found in Robert's attic. The necklace was a gold chain with a small sterling silver pendant in the shape of a salmon, with a diamond setting for the eye. Andrea may have been carrying a black zippered purse and a small floral print makeup bag. Despite Andrea's mother providing Andrea's dental records to assist with any identification, Andrea is still listed as a missing person. Robert admitted to blindfolding and handcuffing Sherry Morrow the moment she got in his car. He drove off, and during the trip, he forced her to kneel on the floor of the vehicle. When they arrived at the Kinnick River, Robert took a Ruger Mini-14 out and shot Sherry, who had fought and screamed for her life. During Robert's confession, he admitted that Dalen Frey, who disappeared in April 1983, was not buried, but had been left on the ground near his cabin. Robert admitted to taking Frey up in his plane, and the state medical examiner's office later confirmed that her body was found near a different location in August 1985 by a pilot. Despite the background Robert provided, he never showed any sign of remorse for any of his crimes, saying, I didn't start to hate all women. As a matter of fact, I would venture to say I started to fall in love with every one of them. Every one of them become so precious to me, because I wanted their friendship. I wanted them to like me so much. On top of the things that have happened, I'm not saying that I hate all women. I don't. Quite to the contrary. I guess in my own mind, what I'm classifying is a good woman, not a sex worker. I do everything in my power, any way, shape, or form, to do anything for her, to see that no harm ever came to her. But I guess sex workers are women I'm putting down as lower than myself. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. I knew what I did was totally, totally wrong. I guess I wanted to control things. It made me feel masculine or powerful or in control of my life. Including Beth Van Santen, Robert's confession brought the total number of his known murder victims to 17, although there are suspected to be more. Sandra Patterson, who was abducted and raped by Robert in 1971, spoke of a reaction when she was informed that Robert had confessed that she would no longer be required to testify. I proceeded to fall apart. I started crying. I couldn't stop. I had no control over it. It controlled me. 
I can see each and every one of those women. How they died. Probably hunted down like dogs. Wounded. And then hunted more. Part 8. The Last Frontier At the sentencing on February 27th, Assistant DA Frank Rothschild told the court that Robert Hansen wanted to control women on his own terms. In Robert's words, I was just seeing everybody else get theirs. Then it's my turn to have fun now. In the prosecution's closing statement to the court, Rothschild went on to say, Your Honor, before you sits a monster, an extreme aberration of a human being. He is a compulsive liar. He gives us what he knows he had to give us, and no more. For those people that he has slain, for those lucky enough to have survived, for all of us. Your Honor, we ask that you rid us of this beastly man forever. This man who loves the outdoors. He's never going to smell the freshness of a mountain meadow. He'll never hear water trickle again down a creek. He'll never thrill in seeing our great wilderness. And our wild animals that roam there. He truly hates being locked up. It's better that we lock him up and make him live with this for each breath that he takes for the rest of his life. Robert Hansen chose not to address the court at his sentencing. Before handing down the sentence, Judge Ralph Moody directed the following comments to the court and to Robert. It's hard to believe that humanity produces and sustains people who have the ability and propensity to commit such enormous, such beastly, such indescribable crimes... What we have seen here today, what the defendant has admitted to in many respects, is a condemnation of society as a whole. The court system has failed. Knowing that he was a problem, probation officers, police officers, members of society themselves who could not come forward. I can't think of a bigger indictment of society than this. In these cases, he took people who could least protect themselves, people from the standpoint of lower society, I hope when we leave this courtroom today that I have to the best of my ability provided this man shall never walk the streets of America or any other place as a free man. Sir, I have to consider you the worst offender in all respects in all these charges against you. And with that, Robert Hansen was convicted and sentenced to 461 years plus life with no chance of parole and was remanded to the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. Even after the sentencing, Robert's wife continued to find jewelry in their home that didn't belong to her, and she passed this on to the police. Although Robert had identified further grave sites on the map during his earlier confession, and most of the snow cover had melted, the ground near the Knick River was still frozen 8 to 10 inches down, meaning authorities would have to wait until late April when the ground had thawed to commence a physical search. When the time came, Robert accompanied law enforcement via helicopter to the outskirts of Anchorage, leading them to locations corresponding with the X's on his map, where he buried more of his victims. Not all locations on the map were canvassed, and remains at some locations failed to be recovered, as it was determined that some shallow graves had most likely been disturbed by bears and other wild animals scavenging for food. The two-week search from April 25th to May 9th successfully located the remains of seven more of Robert's victims. These were Lisa Futrell, found south of the Old Knick Bridge. Malai Larson, found near the parking area near the Old Knick Bridge. Sue Luna, found east of the Knick River. Tamara Peterson, 
on 1.5 miles from the old Knick Bridge, Angela Federn, found at Figure 8 Lake, and Teresa Watson, found at the Kenai Peninsula. During this search, Robert also led police to an unidentified victim found at Horseshoe Lake, who investigators dubbed Horseshoe Harriet. The victim was lying face down and dressed in a wool scarf, knitted coat and sweater, blue jeans, wool socks, leg warmers, nylon bra and tennis shoes, cigarettes, condoms, a compact, comb, and four gold rings were found with the body. The victim had been stabbed and shot and would have been 5 foot 2 inches to 5 foot 6 inches tall when she was alive. Although Romer had previously confessed to the murders of both Roxanne Eastland and Andrea Altieri, their bodies have never been found, though some have speculated that the body of Horseshoe Harriet is possibly that of Andrea. Listener, you may be wondering what happened to Cindy Paulson. By the time Robert was sentenced, Cindy had returned to sex work. However, she later moved away from Alaska, married, and had three children. In 1988, 49-year-old Robert Hansen was returned to Alaska and incarcerated at Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward. Contrary to his condition of not being imprisoned in Alaska, this was proof that Robert didn't always get what he asked for. Robert's wife knew nothing of her husband's double life, let alone the terror he inflicted upon the women of Anchorage over at least 12 years. She and her children continued to visit Robert in prison for a long time following sentencing, but in the end... The humiliation and whispers around Anchorage proved too much to bear, and the family relocated to Arkansas. Despite being deeply religious and doing her best as a wife to provide moral support to her husband, Robert's wife divorced him in 1990. The Pope and Young Club initially stated that Robert's crimes would not invalidate his bow hunting records. However, they later made the decision to remove his name from their records books. In November 1991, Tamara Peterson's stepfather appeared on television, expressing his anger and frustration with the APD and their investigation. Tamara's body was recovered following Robert Hansen's sentencing. The autopsy showed that she had been shot twice. However, like other victims, she could only be identified through dental records. Given the incidents that had already been reported by the time Tamara disappeared in 1982, in Robert's history of violence against women... Had he been taken in prior to the early 1980s, many more lives may have been spared. The mother of another victim, Angela Federn, whose body was also identified following sentencing, was angry about Robert's plea bargain, saying of the victims, I don't see why he should be alive, and they dead. The body of Dylan Frey was later found in August 1985, near Horseshoe Lake by a pilot. Dylan's younger half-brother, Joseph, was born only three years before her older sister disappeared, in April 1983. Being so young, Joseph had difficulty remembering what she looked like. Dalen's father was not informed of his daughter's death prior to his own passing in the early 1990s. In June 2018, Dalen's cousin Deborah remembered her by saying, She was never a happy child and never smiled. She had the most beautiful eyes but was always sad. Her mother never informed anyone in our family this happened to her, and I was probably closer to her than anyone in our family. This was just a horrible tragedy. My heart cries for her often, and there isn't a day that I don't think about her. The investigation and subsequent conviction of Robert Hansen prompted the Alaska State Troopers to develop specific protocols to respond to sexual assault cases, and Alaska now has a dedicated crime lab for processing forensic evidence. 
Sadly, in 2019, the rate of reported rape in Alaska continues to be 2.5 times the national average. In a state with a current population of only 735,000 people, Alaska consistently tops national figures when it comes to the rate of violence committed against women, with 59% of women in the state experiencing sexual violence at the hands of their intimate partner or by a stranger. There are now more safe houses around the state for survivors of violence, but the lack of access to women's shelters in rural areas continues to be an ongoing issue, and one that distinctly disadvantages native Alaskan women and children. The Anchorage-based advocacy agency Standing Together Against Rape recently found that 30% of Alaskans were unable to access victim services due to the lack of availability of these in their local areas. Gun violence on the whole continues to be problematic in Alaska, with more guns per capita than any other state in the U.S. When it comes to recovering the potential victims of Robert Hansen, anyone with any information about the following women, who are still listed as missing persons, is asked to contact the following law enforcement agencies. For any information about 18-year-old Beth Van Santen, who went missing on December 22, 1971, and whose body was discovered three days later on Christmas Day that year, please contact the Anchorage Police Department. For any information about 17-year-old Megan Emmerich, who went missing on July 7, 1973, and 22-year-old Mary Thill, who disappeared on July 5, 1975, please contact the Seward Police Department. For any information about 24-year-old Roxanne Eastland, who was last seen on July 2, 1980, and 24-year-old Andrea Altieri, who disappeared on December 2, 1981, please contact the Alaska State Troopers. In 2014, authorities exhumed the body of the previously unidentified victim, known as Horseshoe Harriet, with a renewed hope of using DNA testing and facial reconstruction to determine her identity. However, this remains unconfirmed. The body of Eklutnayani remains unidentified, but authorities have sought assistance regarding her identity using facial reconstruction technology. Anyone with information as to her identity is asked to contact the APD. In a postscript to our story, in May 2014, Robert Hansen was moved to the Anchorage Correctional Center to receive medical attention. Three months later, on August 21st, he died at the age of 75 at Alaska Regional Hospital in Anchorage due to undisclosed long-term health conditions, though an article at the time suggests that the cause of death was heart failure. On the day of Robert's death, State Trooper Sergeant Glenn Flothy, one of several investigators who worked tirelessly to bring Robert to justice, said, On this day, we should only remember his many victims and all of their families. And my heart goes out to all of them. As far as Hansen is concerned, this world is better without him. <laughs>